Hi, and welcome to the Purdue Commercial AgCast, the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture's podcast featuring farm management news and information. On today's episode, I'm your host, Brady Brewer. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Agricultural Economics here at Purdue University. Uh, and joining me today is a trio of experts that have studied uh, the ag credit markets. Uh, so our first guest, Jack Jackson Takich, is the chief economist uh, and Senior Director of Strategy, Research, and Analytics at Farmer Max. So Jackson, welcome. Well, uh, thank you for having uh, me and then the panel today, Brady. It's a pleasure to be with you. And uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar uh, out there in the, in the listening public, unfamiliar with Farmer Mac, we're the secondary market for agricultural real estate uh, lending in, in addition to uh, rural infrastructure lending. So we're a secondary market uh, and we see a lot of loans from coast to coast. Uh, and also joining us from Farmer Mac is Greg Lyons. So welcome, Greg. Uh, thank you very much, Brady. I really appreciate being here to uh, discuss a very important topic here. I'll give a quick plug, actually, for our quarterly publication, uh, The Feed, where we talk a lot about issues like this, as well as some fun things like uh, the relationship between the 1980s ostrich boom in farming and uh, hemp production. So uh, I may have to ask you about the 1980s ostrich boom here after we get done recording. Uh, <laughs> so... Uh, and then also joining us today on our panel is Ulia Tedov, uh, and Ulia is a assistant professor of agribusiness at Illinois State University. So welcome, Ulia. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. My pleasure to be here with you today. Uh, my uh, research primarily focuses on um, agricultural credit markets, debt repayment capacity, some work on succession planning, and some work on human capital and agriculture. So thank you for inviting well, thank you for being here to all of our panel today. Uh, before we jump into the research papers that you guys uh, helped co-author, I do just want to give the audience a quick reminder. So this is part of a series on non-traditional lending. Um, so this podcast, so uh, it'll be linked in the description below, but the other podcasts in this series um, also cover other papers that were done in this special issue of the Agricultural Finance Review. Uh, I do want to give a quick reminder of what is, you know, so I just used the term, what is a uh, non-traditional lender? Well, you know, if you think about the traditional lenders, the, the commercial banks in your small rural community, or the farm credit system, uh, those are who we typically label as a traditional lender. Though, as you'll see today, there are different classes of non-traditional lenders that we need to be cognizant of. Um, but most of the time, we classify a non-traditional lender as someone who isn't typically set up to loan money, or that's not their primary purpose. A good example of this would be the equipment manufacturers. So if you think about going to an equipment manufacturer and getting uh, a loan for the piece of equipment you're buying, while their credit arm, yes, I do realize that their credit arm is set up to loan money for uh, that particular uh, piece of equipment or, or their product that they are selling, they're not a traditional bank. You, they don't have checkable deposits. You can't open up a savings and, and checking account. Um, really, the sole purpose of that business uh, isn't to loan money. It's, to, it's a complement to the piece of equipment that they are selling. And one of the reasons that we did this research is that non-traditional lenders have gained market share here over the last couple of decades. Uh, by some estimates, non-traditional lending uh, is as high as 15 to 25%, depending on uh, where what particular part of the ag credit market you're looking at, um, but that is their market share, and that is a pretty high market share, and we don't know very much about uh, these non-traditional lenders, so we set out to do this research 
um, on various aspects of the ag credit market and how non-traditional lenders are impacting uh, the ag credit markets. So with that, I want to turn to our first paper that we're going to discuss, and that is uh, Greg and Jackson's paper uh, titled, A Profile of Non-Traditional Agricultural Real Estate Lender Activity in the Secondary Market. Uh, so Greg or Jackson, does one of you want to give a brief introduction to what your paper was about and, and why uh, this uh, strain of research was needed. Yeah, Brady, thank you. I'll, I'll, I'll kick us off here uh, and then and then send it over to Greg for uh, additional thoughts. Um, you know, ultimately, what we wanted to do, we wanted to sort of solve two problems. One being that there wasn't a tremendous amount of data out, out there in the public's eye on what real estate lending looks like for non-traditionals versus traditional lenders. So we read a lot of papers and, you know, you kind of go back in the history of academic research, you got to go pretty far back to find some of these papers that talk about the motivation of non-traditional lenders or why borrowers may choose those non-traditional lenders. And we looked around at, at data inside of uh, Farmer Max portfolio and said, we actually have a lot of insights here. Let's, let's try to uh, talk about some of those and, and put some of those out there into the research. So part of it was, hey, let's, let's just take the data that we have and can expose and answer some initial questions on uh, and then I'd say the other one is to sort of raise additional awareness of uh, different types of lenders and motivations. So, you know, we go to some lengths to describe some of those economic motivators inside of uh, those non-traditional lenders. So it's not just one group. There's several different subtypes inside of this, you know, real estate lending population uh, that's driving activity. So it's not just, you know, just the, the vendor credit. There's also portfolio lenders in that mix. There's also people who kind of look for uh, pairing their products with other products. Uh, so, so there's a lot of different motivations inside that group. And we wanted to sort of extend those definitions specific to real estate. That's really where Farmer Max portfolio lives is in real estate. So we thought we had a unique perspective and wanted to share it uh, through this uh, paper and the research. I'd say maybe the last thing we want to do is, is raise additional questions. So, hey, we can point out maybe the the uh, capability to provide future research and, and help other people maybe ask more questions about uh, non-traditional ag real estate as a specific asset class, maybe different from other credit providers. So Jackson, I want to follow up real quick before uh, Greg jumps in and, and you talk about the real estate market. And, you know, my understanding is that uh, non-traditionals, or at least the non-traditionals I'm aware of in my introduction, I, I use the, the dealer credit as an example. I don't really think of non-traditional serving the real estate markets. So can you give us a little bit of a sense of who the, uh, these entities are that are loaning money for real estate that, that what we, who we would classify as a non-traditional lender? Yeah, sure. I mean, and there are some vendor providers uh, out there who are pairing up. Maybe they, they do uh, one type of uh, financing against equipment, but they want to also be able to bundle uh, a real estate product. So they offer, you know, maybe the real estate product that they sell to the secondary markets as a way to have multiple offerings, right? So to increase their value to the customer. Uh, we definitely see participants in, in that line of business, but also mortgage brokers who build portfolios of loans in the same sense that you might see in a residential lending marketplace. Uh, there are uh, brokers and, and mortgage bankers who will uh, sell, they, they originate and sell into the secondary market as a source of, uh, of revenue. Uh, maybe maybe it, they don't have any other products, maybe it's just their business is to go out, meet with farmers, hit their uh, needs and make sure they're getting the cheapest access to a long-term uh, ag real estate credit that they can get. And they find a marketplace out there 
uh, just for those services. And then I'd say maybe a third one is that portfolio lender. They actually like to build a portfolio of assets and then they sell off ones that fit into uh, the secondary market standards. And they use that as a way to uh, funnel additional revenues and, and to, to do more transactions through us. Uh, so I think there's you know three big buckets, but inside of each, you get a little nuance of people who are participating in the market. Uh, so Greg, I want to turn to you now. Um, would you mind going over what you guys did to study this issue and then maybe thinking about some of the findings related to the borrowers of, of who use these non-traditional lenders? Yeah, and, and so the way that we really looked at this was just to go through the entire life cycle of the loan because you can go back and see questions all along the chain uh, that are very important. I think right at the start, you're talking about you know, does a traditional borrower have an advantage because are they able to, through, you know, things like mortgages or other products, can they see unobservable characteristics that will allow them to better risk borrowers or to better assess a borrower's creditworthiness? And all along the chain, uh, that comes up with questions of uh, whether or not the, there are differences in cost, differences in performance. And so it's really important for us to understand the entire life cycle of the loan from the day it comes in the door from somebody who submits a loan to us to well after we purchase it to see loan performance. Uh, and so the very first question, as you point out here, was whether or not these borrowers look any different. Are, do we see any evidence that the people who use loans from uh, non-traditional entities, do they differ? And there are some differences that we observed. Uh, I think the most noticeable one that we saw is that loans from non-traditional entities were significantly larger than loans from traditional entities, almost two times as large on average over the period that we observed here. Uh, but there were some other differences as well. One that will sound fairly obvious is that people borrowing from non-traditional entities are typically much farther away from the actual loan officer than people who are right next door. And that sort of lends into that idea as, are there these sort of unobservables? Uh, and so the thing that we didn't necessarily see was large differences in the overall, uh, the, the credit characteristics of the borrowers. Uh, there was some difference in LTV, but a lot of the other uh, characteristics we looked at in terms of the term debt coverage or other financial ratios were, were largely similar. Now, a couple of variations uh, that we did notice was that we did see a lot more prevalence of uh, non-traditional lender activity in permanent plantings, for example, uh, highly specialized, highly capital intensive uh, commodities, which makes sense given uh, some of the larger loan sizes we see there. And we saw less activity uh, in row crops. And one thing that we did see is that in areas of the country like Iowa, for example, and Iowa is as a really robust commercial banking uh, sector. They have this incredibly efficient farm credit system, and we see very little non-traditional lender activity. Uh, compare that to areas in, say, the southeast and the west coast. We see some evidence through things like the Agricultural Resource Management Survey, where they're paying a little bit more for their loans. They have higher note rates. We see some evidence there that there's more activity for non-traditionals in those parts of the country. Uh, and so I think those are some of the primary differences that we noticed. One thing I do want to note here, though, is that the loans that we see are only the loans that people submit to us. And because we have our own underwriting standards, that's not necessarily going to be representative of what these lenders are doing entirely. It's just what we see that they sent to us. Yeah, uh, so we are seeing a, a snapshot, but I would assume a fairly uh, decently sized sample of, of the snapshot of the ag credit market. And you guys both just hit on a lot of stuff that I know when, when we get to Ulia's paper, which is on the strategy of these non-traditional lenders uh, will come into play, especially when you think about the convenience and the interest rate and, and why some of these people uh, or the, the customers of these non-traditional lenders choose to do business with them. 
Um, so Jackson, I, I want to turn now back to you. So Greg went over the findings uh, from you know who borrows um, from these non-traditional lenders. What about the performance of these non-traditional lenders? Do we see uh, any implications in the ag credit markets from the performance of these non-traditional lenders? Yeah, once you've controlled for all the things you could control for, right? So we're looking at um, uh, lots of different variables and fi fixed effects. Uh, there really is no difference in the performance of loans. So once they've closed, they've met all the criteria, they've kind of cleared the hurdle of the underwriting uh, standards at uh, in the secondary markets. They tend to be a, a, a loan is a loan is a loan at that point. So we don't see a tremendous amount of difference in those two uh, populations of loans uh, based off of, you know, just who submitted that or, or who the loan came from. That was not a driver of future default. So again, it makes sense if you think about all those different financial metrics were largely the same, uh, you know, and you controlled for the things that, you know, you wanted to control for, that there is no difference in delinquencies, I think makes a lot of sense, right? So uh, that's, that's what the data show. We looked at, you know, short-term, medium-term, and longer-term cumulative default rates and didn't find any evidence of uh, that separation between the, the non-traditionals and traditionals. Uh, which, which I think, again, really ties back to the type and quality of loans that are kind of coming through uh, these pipelines. Yeah, and that's probably good news for the ag credit markets. Um, I will uh, say from my experience, I have heard a lot of issues surrounding non-traditional lenders. You know, I mentioned at the beginning, 15 to 25% of the market share, and we don't know a whole lot about some of these loans due to the regulatory environment surrounding some of these non-traditional lenders. So there's a lot of speculation that they could be increasing the risk of the ag credit markets um, be, because maybe farmers that are have less liquidity, less equity may be driven to them and they're willing to loan. Um, I wanna, you know, thinking broadly and I'll open this to both uh, Greg and Jackson. Um, if you think about some of the implications for the research that you guys did, what, what should be, we be thinking about for, what are the implications that this research uh, tells us? Well. I'll just kick this off, Brady, and actually I think you raised a great point there is that when there's an unknown here, there's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, and the question I think that's on everybody's mind here is, are we seeing differences in risk for, coming from these borrowers? And uh, one thing we did actually look at at the paper was, for example, the use of more variable rate products, where we did see that uh, non-traditional uh, non entities were much more likely to submit loans with variable rate products, where our traditional entities were more likely to use fixed rate loans uh, with a little more controlling of interest rate risk. Uh, again, some different types of borrowers here, but just there are a lot of these questions that we just sort of want to explore uh, explore how they differ and whether or not there's any risks that are being passed along. We didn't see a lot of evidence of that, uh, but I think as this is a growing market share, it's very important for us to understand the dimensions. Yeah, and, and I'll add in there just the, that the, the market development. So where are non-traditionals active and where are they not? Uh, it's really a good uh, exercise in competition across uh, the ag lending landscape. And so that's something I think we're going to continue to study. Uh, and and there's probably additional research opportunities here as to uh, where these non-traditionals are popping up and are they lowering the cost of credit for uh, farmers and ranchers uh, across. I mean, our evidence uh, today points to yes, uh, but again, further research is probably warranted in that space. So I want to turn now to the second paper uh, that we're going to discuss on today's episode, and that 
uh, is titled Strategic Behavior of Non-Traditional Lenders in the Agricultural Credit Markets. Um, and this uh, paper was authored by Ulia Teta at Illinois State University uh, and Michael Bolji, uh, Anil Giri, and Sankalp Sharma. Uh, so first off, welcome back, uh, Ulia. Do you want to give the audience a, a brief overview of what your paper was about and then maybe why, what, what, what motivated you to do this research? Sure. Um, so kind of following up on what Jackson and Greg were talking about, that non-traditional lending is not really a new phenomenon. It's been around and the, it became a buzzword in the last 10 years, probably, but we've seen quite a bit of research on the demand side, not on the supply side. And so what really motivated us to dig a little bit deeper is to really <clears throat> gain some insights into who those non-traditional lenders are, what kind of credit programs they offer, what business models they use, uh, what operational activities they're engaged in, right? So really trying to understand who they are. But the issue, like they said, is that um, um, not all, but some of them don't, most, most of them don't have um, financial reporting requirements. And so that's why where the data vacuum comes in. So the only option we had, my coworker, my collaborators and I had was to do um, a study, just have an executive interview with five companies. So we've interviewed five, interviewed five non-traditional lenders. Uh, one of them represented a, a vendor financing kind of segment and the other four represented collateral-based non-traditional lenders. And so we asked them just a set of questions on who, who do they serve, who their customers are, uh, what products they offer. Uh, what credit evaluation process they follow, um, what about their collateral requirements, loan volumes, interest rates, funding sources, where they got their funding, et cetera. So that's what the study was all about. Why was it, yeah, why was it important is because, as they said, growing market share, um, market share of non-traditional lenders is going up, and then farmers are becoming more reliant, um, rely, uh, reliant on them, um, particularly in, in the times of economic downturn and so and limited data. So those were kind of the motivators. Yeah, and there's a lot to go on here when you think about some of the the strategy implications of these non-traditional lenders, as as Greg and Jackson just laid out. You know, I think Greg said that they're typically farther away. Uh, some of the loans, at least on the real estate side, tend to be larger. So there's obviously some pretty important things that they're doing to attract customers away from the, the more traditional uh, lenders that we think of that play in the ag credit markets. Uh, so Ulia, so you, you did these five executive interviews. Uh, what were some of the key findings that you found through, through this research process? Mm -hmm. And just a quick note, so um, just to remind our listeners that this was a case study type of work, right? So we've interviewed only five, co five companies, and we cannot generalize across, so we cannot say that we know all of these non-traditional lenders, but we just know a little bit of them, so just a kind of a warning. So um, what did we find? Uh, first of all, kind of following back on what Jackson and Greg talked about, um, we found that non-traditional lenders actually work primarily with financially stable or strong customers, which is kind of opposite to what the stereotype was before we dig into these papers. We thought that they were the kind of um, uh, last resort lender, right? What we found is, yes, some of them do have an alternative financing product. So they do work with financially fragile or maybe farms in transition. But um, a lot of them do prefer to start working with customers um, who really are in at least financially neutral, what they call, or a stable position. 
The other interesting thing that we found is what then that is that the non-traditional lenders market is very segmented. So these companies seem to be doing a really good job of identifying the gaps in the agricultural credit markets that traditional lenders, for one or the other reason, cannot fill in. So and then they do a really good job of trying to figure out a strategy that best fit, fill in those gaps. And a couple other interesting things that we can have to remember is that some of them really work as pass-through entities. So technically what they do, they channel the funds and the credit from credit providers to the borrowers. An example I'll give you, um, one of the vendor financing companies that we've interviewed, Input Provider, technically their purpose is to um, uh, grow their sales, right? And so what they do, they work with the traditional lender and they channel funds to their customers by giving credit, right? And so that way, um, that's well how we see them as a pass-through entity. And when they do that, they accept their credit application process, et cetera. So technically they follow their guidelines of the traditional lender. That's something to keep in mind. And um, another big takeaway is that when we looked at um, four companies that we interviewed where it belonged to the uh, collateral secured uh, non-traditional lenders segment. And so we've seen a lot of differences within that segment. We've kind of segregated them into two which was production secured non-traditional lenders. So those that use crop insurance as a, as a collateral, and then they give loans to farmers, primarily operating loans. And then the other one was real estate secured non-traditional lenders. So that's what Greg and Jackson, which Greg and Jackson were talking about. And those are who use um, real estate as collateral. And so we found a lot of differences even within that segment because they use different loan approval guidelines, uh, use, uh, they have different geographic footprint because they cover crops production, for example, production secured MTLs, they cover only insured crops, right? They work only with customers who, who can have their crops insured, whereas the real estate um, secured NTLs, they have a wider um, scope. And then sourcing of funds, we see that um, collateral, um, sorry, we see that um, production secured NTLs um, they use multiple sources of funds, but primarily rely heavily on private equity markets and they work with uh, some securitization partners. But um, when it comes to real estate secured non-traditional lenders, their funding sources are more diverse. Um, it can be other traditional lender, it can be other non-traditional lender, like we've seen a unique dynamic when one real estate secured non-traditional lender would work with the um, another NTL and channeling money through that way as well. And then they use public and private equity markets as well. So these non-traditional lenders are providing, you know, they're closing gaps, right, in in the traditional market. Is there a reason that these gaps exist, Ulia? Did you did you get into any, uh, in, in your interviews with these non-traditional lenders? Why, why do you think traditional lenders are not lending to these gaps in, in the credit markets? Because obviously there's a need here for these farmers uh, to have credit for, you know, these inputs or, or certain circumstances. Uh, why are they, their needs are not already being served? Mm -hmm. Yes, it's a good question. So um, part of it, I believe it may be coming from um, the regulatory environment, right? Traditional lenders are more regulated than non-traditional lenders. And so that's that's what limits some of the things that they can do with certain borrowers. But another is what they offer, right? So if you look at um, 
why farmers use would use a non-traditional lender. They would use um, sometimes because of convenience and speed or time to close the, on the loan, um, like an input provider, as I said, issuing credit to a producer. Um, sometimes they would, you know, um, they would have a credit program that they offer to a producer, and at times they can subsidize those interest rates to grow their um, um, sales, right? So that could be one of the reasons why. Um, a farmer would want to go with them. Another reason, if a producer, for example, is a heavy renter, right? So rely grows is a large, already large operation, grows at the expense of renting, not buying land. In that case, that producer would be would have limited equity. And as they have limited equity, traditional lender, because of their um, the way they structure risk and their regulatory framework, they would not be, they will be limited in what they can do with that producer. So that's when the production secured non-traditional lender would come in because they use crop insurance as their collateral. That's another example. Um, so obviously there's some pretty you know, de- uh, uh, strategic implications here for the ag credit market. So Uli, I, want, I want to turn next to kind of the implications of you know, what, what are these non-traditional lenders playing in, in the uh, ag credit markets from the research that you did um, what should be the large takeaways from your research? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the large takeaways from the research is that we, um, I guess, I guess as 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 um, we continue seeing this trend more toward heavy reliance on the rented acres on the producer side. I think we got to look more closely on these non-traditional lenders and the strategies they use, um, because that that that's probably where they're going to fill in the gap the most, right? Because of the kind of um, collateral they use. So I think that's one implication. Another implication I think would be interesting to look at um, as as you know, in five to ten years, as the uh, producer population uh, becomes younger, are then is the next generation of producers going to be um, more loyal to traditional lenders, or will they be more likely to shop around and really look at conditions? We see some evidence actually out of Purdue, right? You guys did some research on input providers that farmers really go for the best deal. And so at this point, it would be very interesting, I think, to look at um, the perception of farmers of traditional versus non-traditional. And uh, um, I think finally, what one of the most exciting thing about this research was that how dynamic the market is. I came in the research thinking that, well, it's pretty competitive, we know that. Um, but I think that I didn't realize how much opportunity for collaboration there exists for traditional and non-traditional lenders actually on participating loans and servicing loans, et cetera. And so I think as it would be interesting to see how as the regulatory environment changes and financial condition in agriculture changes, how the dynamics between traditional and non-traditional lenders would change. I believe that there will be definitely areas of competition, but I think maybe more opportunities for collaboration as well. Okay, thank you, Ulia. So I, I wanna give Greg and Jackson now a time to res, uh, respond to, to Ulia's research project. Uh, are there any cross implications you know, that she talked about that you guys also found in, in your paper? Yeah, yeah, I think there was a, a ton of uh, really great supporting evidence to, across both uh, pieces of research. So, I mean, I, it was a fascinating read, a great piece of research. And you talk about the strategies of why lenders get into the space and maybe why borrowers choose those lenders. We see those same types of strategies being deployed in the secondary market as well. So there was a lot of supporting evidence, I think, in, in our research 
to what uh, uh, you know, Ulia and uh, her uh, co-authors laid out in this piece. So it was really gr- a great read, and I think a good piece of cross and supporting research. Yeah, and I, I just wanted to say that uh, I think that you can look at our research and her research, and I think the discussion of gaps is incredibly important, uh, and the question of uh, why those gaps exist and should any and, uh, and uh, what's being done to address those gaps is critically important uh, as we think to how we're going to finance the farm sector over the course of the next few decades. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree, and I do just want to point out, uh, as I said at the beginning, this is part of a series. Uh, the findings that these two papers found, uh, there are uh, other similar findings from some of the other papers in this special issue of the Agricultural <clears throat> Finance Review uh, that find, you know, that these non-traditional lenders aren't necessarily increasing the risk of the market, um, and that they are filling gaps in, you know, whether it be niche markets or certain demographics of farmers that may be being underserved, um, they're they're stepping in and, and getting money to people that may otherwise have a tough time uh, getting money to finance their operation, which as someone who studies the ag finance market as, as an, an, an economist, I, I view that as a really good thing for the ag, not just ag credit markets, but ag markets in general. Uh, selfishly, since I, as I said, I study ag finance, I tend to view that the production process starts at the bank, right? Without money to put the crop in the ground, you're not going to get that uh, crop going in, in the first place. So a, a crucial first step in, in ag. Uh, I just want to remind our viewers that if you're looking for any other uh, economic information to please visit us at the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture's website at purdue.edu backslash commercial ag, or follow us on Twitter. Um, the Twitter handle is at PU commercial ag. Uh, the PowerPoint for this podcast, along with the transcription of the podcast can be found in the description below. The research papers that we discussed here today are also linked in that PowerPoint and will also be linked in the description. Uh, On behalf of the entire Purdue Center, Center for Commercial Agriculture team, I thank you for listening to today's episode.